Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Paul Hawken and Bill McKibben are best-selling authors of seminal books advocating a cleaner and healthier form of capitalism. McKibben's 1989 book, *The End of Nature*, was among the first published on climate change and has been translated into 20 languages. His latest book is *Earth: Making a Life on a Tough New Planet*. He's also founder of 350.org, a grassroots organization pressing for deep cuts in carbon pollution. This summer, Bill McKibben led a group of 1,200 activists who were arrested in front of the White House, protesting a proposed pipeline that would bring oil from the Canadian tar sands to refineries in the United States. In 1999, Paul Hawken co-authored *Natural Capitalism*, an influential critique of industrial capitalism that has been <coughs> translated into 12 languages. He founded several sustainable food and energy companies, hosted a PBS series on socially responsive business. Remains active as an entrepreneur, consultant, and author. His latest book is *Blessed Unrest: <coughs> How the Largest Movement in the World Came into Being and Why No One Saw It Coming*. For the next hour, we'll discuss the relationship between our economy and our environment with Paul Hawken and Bill McKibben, and include questions from our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. Also, happy to note this is only their second time appearing together on stage. Please welcome Paul Hawken and Bill McKibben. <laughs> Thank you all for coming. Thank you both for coming.、Um, let's begin with、uh, the economy and growth. Jobs and economic growth are on people's minds, and most people would say the way to get out of this recession or whatever in is to grow、uh, consumer spending or government investment.、Uh, is that really? Environmentalists would say we should have green growth. Paul Hawken, is that the way out of our current predicament? Is growth more and more?、Uh, well, I think it's important to understand how we got into this predicament, and we got into this predicament by artificially stimulating consumption for the last 40 years by a series of cascadingly bizarre debt instruments and ways of, you know, using smoke and mirrors in order to have consumers. Believed that they actually had the money to spend and send to China for LCD TVs and things like that, and and what we what we saw in 2008 was <coughs> the, the, the puncturing of that. That's the real bubble, 
uh, it's a credit bubble. And what we'll probably be experiencing for the next 10, 12 years is the unwinding of that credit collapse and the deleveraging. So what that means is that the old levers won't work. That is to say, um, giving people tax cuts or putting money in their pocket so they can spend it on Walmart is not going to actually get the economy moving again. And in order to reimagine what it takes to uh, grow an economy, you have to first identify and change what we're growing because what we've grown has actually put us into this position in the first place. And we've exported jobs and money. We've degraded our currency and continue to do so and put the nation at great risk by its dependency, uh, not only on other countries' manufacturing, but on oil and energy from other countries. So we basically are deep in the pocket, which is kind of good in a way because, you know, Americans generally don't respond to, to real systemic change until there's a crisis. And this is a crisis. Bill McKibben? You know, if we really back up a step and think about what our economies consisted of since the end of World War II in this period of spectacular growth, the basic animating force of that economy was the task of building bigger houses farther apart from each other. That's what we've spent most of our wealth on. And it's a project that ended up being environmentally ruinous and socially ruinous too. Um, you know, the average American has half as many close friends as they did in the 1950s. That's why, despite the fact that our standard of living has trebled, the number of Americans who say they're happy with their lives has gone consistently down. So, I, you know, the, the fact that we're in a period of economic trauma probably is a good sign that we need to start thinking much more systemically about what we're going to do differently. My guess is that the economy we're moving towards looks less to growth than to durability and resilience and security, that it's probably going to be far more, that the trajectory will be more in the direction of local instead of the ever-expanding outward globalism that's relied on an endless supply of cheap fossil energy to make it possible. I think we're in one of those really interesting moments that has a lot of promise, and the only real worry is that climate change is happening so fast Mm -hmm. that it may knock the props out from under the whole thing before we can get where we need to go. Just to give you the easiest example, the place you can see this new economy emerging is in food. And it's been wonderful to watch. Um, As the local food movement has grown and the number of farmers' markets has doubled and then doubled, that's the fastest growing part of our food economy. Fast enough that last year the USDA said there were actually more farms in America instead of fewer for the first time in 150 years, okay, which is great. The problem is that the thing that will – I mean, I, I live in Vermont, which is at the, 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 the headqu- one of the headquarters along with the Bay Area of this sort of local food movement. When we had Hurricane Irene – dump more rain on Vermont than ever has fallen there, a direct consequence of the fact that the warm air holds more water vapor than cold. When that happened at the end of August, it wiped out every farmer in the state. There's nothing growing there now. I mean, everything was flooded and submerged, our best local farms um, underwater. We've got to take on these environmental challenges to have any hope of being able to do the kind of really interesting, transformative economic work that's possible now. 
You mentioned sort of limits to growth. That idea has been around since the Club of Rome in the 70s, and some people would say it hasn't had a whole <coughs> lot of impact. And even if some Americans bought into that, there's a couple hundred million Indians and Chinese and Brazilians who want to grow into the middle class. Is that, is that something that is, is inexorable, that can even be stopped? Well, one of the things that makes our predicament hard environmentally and economically is how unequal the world is, you know. I mean, that kind of <coughs> inequality which has always been a sin, is also a great practical impediment because you're right. There are people who... So the dual challenges are reconfiguring Western economies so that they're no longer the kind of uh, uh, planet-wrecking um, dynamo that they've been for a while, and spending the money, some of the money that we piled up in a 100 years of doing what we've been doing to help other economies figure out <clears throat> other paths forward. Paul Alkin, uh Bill McDonough was here, and he said recently, you know, it, it's not okay to be just less bad, right? I mean, a lot of environment, green growth would say, well, it's okay. You know, is green growth okay if it's just less bad, or is that not enough? Yeah, it's a, it's a chicken and egg argument because incrementalism will kill us, and there's no way to get there except by increment. So... Um, uh, it, it depends which way you look at it. Uh, and the reason it will kill us is simply because of what Bill spoke about, which is that the rate of change, and I prefer climatic volatility as to cl- climate change. Change sounds kind of interesting. You know, we all want to change our lives. Uh, we don't want to change climate, but it's the volatility. It becomes from something where the, the, the peaks and valleys are uh, on one node, and, and then you change it until you get to kind of these uh, not just extreme weather events, but superstorms, like we saw in Pakistan, the superstorm we saw in Europe last year, uh, what we saw in Queensland and Australia, and uh, mm. Cyclone Yasi was uh, just stunned uh, uh, the east coast of Australia. And so when you get that kind of uh, you know volatility, um, uh, it makes it much more difficult to uh, rationally move in increments because the nature of human beings, the nature of institutions, is to tweak and change what is. Like, well, this is okay, but let's, well, we'll just change it, you know, and well, we'll make it better. Well, we'll do this, and we'll screw new light bulbs and all that sort of stuff. None of those acts themselves is irrational, uh, and they're all helpful, but what happens is then you actually don't step back as a human being and say, okay, but what do we really need to change? And what we need to change is the system. And the system cannot change until there's a manifest crisis that is shared and the pain is shared. And that's just the way human beings are. I'm not wishing it upon us. And whether it's a climatic uh, crisis, uh, like two force five hurricanes climbing up the East Coast in the same year, uh, that certainly make an impression, uh, or whether it's economic or whether it's both because they're not unrelated. Uh, I don't know what it'll be, but in the meantime, what I see happening and why I wrote Blessed and what I see Bill doing with P50.org is that it's extraordinarily important for people to sort of build in or to create, uh, not, it's not more than resiliency, it's what's going to succeed in a, in a sense, an ecological sense, uh, the system that's in place right now. 
And so it may look marginal, the small farm may look inconsequential, but as I said, there's no such thing as uh, uh, consequ- uh, inconsequential action. There's only consequential inaction. Right well, we have some crises now unfolding. I mean, there, there's droughts, there's uh, forest fires, increased frequency, intensity. <laughs> but are those waking people up in Texas and the Southwest? Or well, the- no, because, I mean, you know, strictly speaking, you could say, well, that was an anomaly. Well, that's weather, and there's a difference between weather and climate. And this is where, in a sense, the... The deniers can climb aboard and actually with some respectability say, well, you cannot say this correlates. What you can say and has been said eloquently by Stephen Schneider and many others before he passed away and others who are still alive like Jim Hansen is that this is a pattern that you will see if climate change is happening. And that pattern is absolutely happening. In fact, it's happening in an accelerating way much quicker than any scientist had predicted, even the most radical or most uh, of science are now taken aback by the rate of change that we're seeing. And it's happening. I mean, it is breaking through to people's consciousness. I, when the uh, forest fires in Texas were at their height in late summer, um, the head of the Texas Forest Fire Service said, no one has ever tried to fight forest fires in conditions like these in human history. And he was right, with the exception of what happened in Australia a couple of years before. There would never been recorded sort of humidities that low, temperatures that high, wind speeds like that. Um, I find when I'm around the country talking to mayors and things like that around the world, yeah, you can, you can often get mayors and things interested. The people that have no problem at all understanding exactly what you're talking about are the people who run public works departments in cities around the world. And it's because the old book said you put in a six-inch culvert and that's going to handle any storm except for the one-in-500-year storm. And wherever they can, they're ripping out the six-inch culverts and putting in 10-inch ones because they're, you know, year after the 500-year storm coming every six months and just cannot deal with it. And that's going to cost a lot of money. Again, we come back to governments that are broke. And some governments, California in particular, are starting to move toward resilience and adaptation while still pushing on mitigation. We're uh, getting ready for the storms that scientists and the models say will come our way. So let's talk about adaptation and how we can respond to these things and get ready. And you think that will actually drive things to a more local level? I think that there, I think that we've got two tasks now as a society. The interesting and powerful, fun one that takes all our creativity is to figure out how to build these beautiful, resilient, interesting local and regional economies that can roll with the punches. That's that's really where I wish I could spend all my time. That's what I mostly write about. And Vermont, where I live, is a place like California that's a leader in it and nothing I'd rather do. I was home 50 days last year, I think, because the second part of this task, the emergency part, is making sure that we don't push the system so hard that that can't happen. So far, we've raised the temperature of the planet one degree, but the climatologists are quite robust in their consensus that that will be four degrees uh, by century's end unless we get our act together very, very fast. There's no reason to think that the best best local economy or adapt... You can't adapt to change at that level. So we've got to... You know, we have got to adapt to that which we can no longer prevent, but even more importantly probably is to prevent that which there is just no way for us to adapt to. 
we're already pushing the outer limits. I mean, we've moved out of the Holocene, the 10,000 years of benign climatic stability that underwrote the rise of human civilization, and we're into something else. And the question is, how deep into that something else are we going to go? And if you think it's hard for us to adapt to those things in a place like California that has plenty of money, I mean, one of the pleasures of being of helping start 350.org is that we work in every country in the world except North Korea. So I've been everywhere. And, you know, this is, this is already a matter of life and death, and all too often death, for people in place after place after place around the world. And, of course... The horrible ethical irony of that is the places that are hit hardest are the places that have done the least to cause the damage. Uh, we don't even, we don't just have a practical onus on us to do something. We have a profound moral one too. But do Americans really care? I mean, there's been poverty in the third world for a long time. Now we're saying we're, we're contributing, <laughs> exacerbating that, that suffering. Not all Americans care, but a lot of Americans do. I think that most people, and the polling is consistent with this, most people understand that climate change is an incredibly serious problem about which we need to do something. I'm not worried about average people being willing to step up. Our problem is far and away caused by the fact that the fossil fuel industry, which is the most profitable industry on Earth, has all the political, all the financial means at their disposal to keep us from taking action, and clearly they're willing to use it. They are willing to keep going the record profits they're making for another five or ten years, even if it means the ruination of the planet. And that's why we're now, I mean, there's nothing uh, polite about the political fights that we're now in. If we cannot break the power of the fossil fuel industry, to delay change and action, then we can't do anything. And that's the work that we're about. And that's why people are going to jail. And that's why people are doing huge things. You know, 350, we've had these great, enormous global days of action uh, in every country on Earth. And it's why people are stepping up. And that's what the battle is, people versus very concentrated pockets of money. Bill McKibben is founder of 350.org. Our other guest today is Paul Hawkins, CEO of One, uh, One Sun Solar. I'm Greg Dalton. Um, let's talk about that civil disobedience. You were in front of the White House in August. About 1,200 people were arrested. Uh, I believe you say that was the largest environmental action. Uh, people in re- say it was the largest civil disobedience uh, protest in this country since the 1980s, and since we did it every day for two weeks, sort of the most sustained of its kind since the civil rights movement. And what was interesting about it and about this whole tar sands fight that's been underway um, with many, many, many groups involved, including great groups from California like Rainforest Action Network and the Sierra Club, um, uh, what was interesting about it was it wasn't the usual suspects who were out there getting arrested. Um, We... We asked everybody when they signed up. We didn't ask them how old they were, because that would be rude to ask. We asked, who was president when you were born? (laughs) And the the biggest cohort came from the FDR and Truman years. The last day of this thing, we had a guy arrested with a, a little sign around his neck that said, Handle with Care, World War II Vet. He'd been born in the Harding administration. Um... 
Um, everybody who got arrested was in a coat and tie or a dress, you know. And the reason was to kind of demonstrate to the rest of the world who the radicals in this scenario are. Radicals, I mean, the people who work at Chevron and Shell and Exxon are radicals. They are willing to alter the chemical composition of the atmosphere in order to get money, okay? That's as radical an act as any person who ever lived has uh, undertaken. Those of us who are trying to preserve the world in something like the form we once knew it are, in this sense, deeply conservative. Mm-hmm. And it's important to get that across, to understand what the... Uh, what the ideologies around this fight really are. I think it's I think it's really important though to make sure that we don't look for love in all the wrong places because it's 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 critical that civil society stop political malfeasance and, and that's what we're talking about with the Keystone XL pipeline. But it is also critical that it doesn't look to political leadership as being the source of transformation and change. And that has to happen in an entirely different way. So we need stops and we need starts. Absolutely. And we need both. And the starts come locally and regionally. They come from enterprise. They come from civil society. They come from individuals. And those starts are the only thing that have the rating, the pace of development and change that is in any way commensurate with what needs to be done. The entire climate fight is just an effort to buy time mm. so that people can do, so that we can build the next world uh, that's, that Paul has written so beautifully about that's coming, and it's coming. And the only thing that can derail the world that's coming is the complete chaos that's unleashed when you add as much energy to this narrow envelope of atmosphere as we're now adding. And trying to keep that chaos from overwhelming the incredibly beautiful things that people are figuring out how to do in place after mm-hmm. place after place. That's the kind of defensive job that some of us uh, have undertaken and that everybody has to undertake at least a little bit because uh, uh, otherwise we'll just be overwhelmed. And will this come about, how much will this will be technology-driven versus socially? Maybe. Both. I mean, you can't do one without the other. I mean, people say, well, if you work on technology, then you're a techno-fix person. You know, you think you can fix it with technology. I just want to offer the fact we are in a technological fix. That's the problem. <laughs> We've been fixed badly by technology. So so we have to address technology because uh, it's extant. At the same time, the, the most powerful lever is social technology because that goes to values. It goes to beliefs. It goes to behavior. And that is the source of, of, of change as opposed to technology per se. But at the same time, I would say this, that in response or in addition to what Bill is saying about, or to your question about, well, do Americans care about poor people? Um, I, I, I thought Americans, are, I think, are extraordinary. And <coughs> I think we underestimate the gravity and the scope of the problems we face, but we also underestimate ourselves <laughs> terrifically. And, and we underestimate our own humanity. And... To me, as a person who works in technology, and I offer this in hope, not as a condemnation or as a criticism, I don't quite think, I don't think we're quite there yet in terms of the tools that we need in order to make that transformation. In other words, and I think if we did have those tools, 
it would be extraordinarily quick in which we would make these adaptations with respect to energy, with respect to so many issues that impact our use of uh, carbon uh, energy and the wastefulness uh, with which we do it. So, and I think those tools are coming. I think they're going to come soon. And that underlines, if you will, and underscores my point, which is get ready. Because we often pivot off of the media, but the media scopes corruption and disease and malfeasance and all the things that titillate, um, but it's bored by hope. And it's bored by real change. It's bored by transformation. It's not, doesn't make good news. And we have to be very, very careful that we don't get addicted or hung up by the same trap that the yeah. nation as a whole and that we really pay attention to what is happening that is transformative because it is happening. It's just obscured by the, the news. Uh, Bill McKibben, you mentioned it, uh, big companies, the fossil fuel companies, and it's easy to blame big companies, but aren't we ultimately the driving demand? And we, we, we're creatures of comfort. Yeah, and this and we... is one of these things you can, you know, go on forever and ever. I mean, people, I think we sort of blame big companies for the wrong things. I'm, you know, I always get, I get emails regularly from people saying, so, you know, they, someone invented a way to make energy with no, you know, from water and, you know, Shell brought it up, the patent, and they're not. I don't believe that. Uh, what I do believe is that they've used their political power to prevent the series of conditions that would allow us to change relatively easily and quickly. We know the thing that we have to do. Everybody who's ever looked at it knows that if you put a serious price on carbon to reflect the damage that it does to the environment, then we would begin to move much more quickly and gracefully in the right direction. The only reason we don't do that is because of the incredible power of the fossil fuel industry to prevent that from happening. And they have used, I mean, uh, look, Exxon made more money last year than any company in the history of money, okay? In, in, in our political system, that gives them way more power than they deserve. And they have used that power to prevent change from happening. And they're using that power right now to try and make sure, you know, all those companies, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which the biggest, the biggest contributor to elections in the last cycle was the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, and they put 94% of their money into the campaigns of climate deniers, all right? Um, they used that power to retard what scientists and economists and everyone else knows that we need to do, and that's the shameful part. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was here a couple of weeks ago, and he said that uh, he was defending the Obama administration, which, which he advises and saying that, well, Congress is in the grip of the fossil fuel companies that you just mentioned. Uh, is that true? Do you think that also the Obama administration has softened because of the resistance? Well, I would, I would counter that argument because what people, people understand, he's handcuffed by Congress, but people don't understand why his mouth is handcuffed. And what we need from Obama is conviction and spine and a clear vision of the future. And that is totally absent. And he has that bully pulpit anytime he wants it. And no Congress can stop him from being a human being. 
and no Congress can stop him from being a father of two beautiful children and saying, I am going to do everything I can to ensure that my daughters have a livable world. Nothing stops him from doing that. And that's what's missing in the Obama administration. The, 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 the dysfunctional politics, that's another issue. I mean, and a real issue and a terrible issue. But that doesn't prevent him from standing up. And, and there are issues on which the Congress doesn't get in the way. That's one reason that we focused so hard on this Keystone Pipeline. Congress has not a thing to do with it. The president will either sign or not sign something called a presidential certificate of national interest. And if he doesn't sign it, then they cannot build this pipeline. Um, his call, I mean, he, you know, he's a basketball guy. It's a 20-foot open jump shot from the top of the key, and he'll either take it or pass <laughs> off, you know. And we're doing our best to help him sort of nerve up to, to do it. Uh, they've made some, they've done a couple of good things. We've got better mileage standards than we used to, and there was some money in the original stimulus bill for green things. Not anywhere near as much money as, say, the Chinese put into their similar stimulus bill. They've done a lot of bad things on their own. Uh, earlier this year, they opened up 750 million tons of coal underneath Wyoming for mining. And it wasn't something Congress made them do. Ken Salazar and the president decided to do it. And that's the equivalent of opening 300 new coal-fired power plants. We can't afford to be doing this any longer. Everything we know about the science of climate change says we've got to keep carbon in the ground. And if we can't do that, then we really can't deal with it. Bill McKibben is founder of 350.org. Other guest today at Climate One is Paul Hawkins, CEO of One Sun Solar. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, let's talk about solar a little bit. Uh, you mentioned the, the Recovery Act. Some of that money went to Solyndra, a company that went bust here in the Bay Area recently. Um, Paul Harkin, a lot of uh, environmentalists and clean energy advocates say solar is the answer. You're an investor in solar, and you say solar is overhyped or overpromised. Uh, well, I'm not an investor. I have investors in, okay. in, in the solar technology. <laughs> um, I wouldn't have invested in solar up to date. Um, I... We have to make a distinction here. Solar is the answer, no question. Uh, and solar energy is the source of all renewable energy, whether it's biomass or wind or wave or thermal. Or, so the sun is definitely the, the original the god. Yeah, yeah, we can. Yeah, Apollo's got it. We're, we're, I'm with that. However, how we implement that is 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 another thing altogether. And what I've said is that, and I quote my colleague Bill which is that, and he said, I've quoted him many times, he said, you know, if, give me the laws of Congress and the laws of physics, you think the laws of physics will prevail. Okay. And I think the same thing holds true in terms of renewable energy. And I think that in some ways the progressive movement has given a hall pass to some renewable technologies that are not renewable, and solar is one of them. And it's not renewable because you're using high intensity, in this case Chinese coal-powered uh, plants to make a low-intensity generator that can't turn around and make itself. And so, therefore, it's not renewable. And second, it is the most toxic form of energy on the planet besides the tar sands per kilowatt hour, save a meltdown in Fukushima. And so... That's because the photovoltaic cells and what goes into them, oh, as well just, as the... It's a witch's brew. And you have, you know, hydrofluoride gases and hydro that are 25,000 times more powerful than CO2, and they're escaping from the sintering ovens in China. And you a quarter ounce escapes, and you have a net uh, uh, positive effect on the environment in terms of carbon, not negative. So 
I'm just saying is that this is an incumbent technology that was drafted from the space program that we're still trying to optimize. And I think that there's another generation of technologies coming that are very different and that do not have this sort of, I mean, it's it's really kind of Promethean technology, which is we're going to beat these molecules into shape. We use the heavy metals and rare earths and and, you know, hydrochloric acid and silane gases and all this sort of stuff. We're going to mix all this up and, you know, present you with something you think is renewable. And I'm saying time out. And we as progressives have to look clearly at what we advocate, not just at what the climate deniers uh, uh, try to, uh, in a sense, uh, ignore. And we have to look with very clear eyes. And if hope is going to work, it has to be practical. If it's going to be practical, it has to pass a sobriety test. If it has to pass a sobriety test, it goes right through the first and second law of thermodynamics. And there's no point in making a renewable energy generator that has a three to five to one return on energy. That energy return on energy invested is laughable. It's what the tar sands have. It's two to three to one. And we came from a hundred to one world. That is the oil and coal world. For every unit of energy we put into uh, the earth, a hundred units came back and that's what we're accustomed to and used to. And get it or not, the fact is that surplus energy is the feedstock of civilization. And when you do not have surplus energy, you do not have civilization. You have a hard scrabble existence. So we've got to be thinking about renewable technologies that have a really magnificent return on the energy invested, not a paltry one. So for all these reasons, all I'm saying is that incumbent solar, thank you for getting us to where we are, but it's not going to take us to where we want to go. Should we stop deploying PV solar on rooftops, etc.? I'm fine with deploying. I'm just saying as long as we have our eye on the right horizon, as opposed to thinking that somehow we found the answer. We have not. And so Linda is a perfect case in point. Bill McKibben. So while we're waiting for Paul's company to produce, and it's going to be in the next year or two, um, uh, uh, the next wave of uh, solar photovoltaics. While you're waiting for that, two things to do. One is to use the other kind of solar energy, solar thermal. Uh, heat your hot water. It's a complete no-brainer. 250 million Chinese, when they take a shower, the hot water is coming off the roof. It's under 1% in this country. Uh, uh, it makes complete sense, and the energy returns are great. And the other kind of energy is human and political energy that we have to muster, and we're beginning to do it. Look, uh, uh, September 24th, this you know huge uh, day of action at 350 uh, uh, um, called Moving Planet, and it was all about um, uh, transportation all over the world. And the, the key thing that that people were doing every place in the country, including right here in San Francisco, was all about bicycles, okay? Because A, they're a part of the solution that we need, and B, they're beautiful and fun, and C, they're one of the very few technologies that both rich people and poor people in this world use, and we need a lot more technologies like that that are about human solidarity. We need to be doing a really good job of trying to uh, remove the glamour attached to, say, automobiles and stick it onto things like bicycles that make far more sense for far more people in far more places. I mean, if this was Copenhagen, there would be a dedicated lane on both sides of Market Street for bikes with a curb between the bikes and the cars so that cars could never, ever 
hit a bicyclist. And that's the kind of change we need. Look, at this is a great town. San Francisco has done fantastic stuff. But we have to get serious. If it were Copenhagen, 40% of San Franciscans would be commuting to work on bicycles. Yeah, that's true. Even in the winter and the snow and dark. Yeah, right. And Um, what's amazing is, having watched them, unlike Americans, they don't all, like, dress up in, you know, ridiculous (laughs) spandex and try to go as, like, fast as they possibly can. They look like you. They go like you. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. uh, They just get in their clothes and they pedal nice old bicycles at a nice steady pace and get where they're going and it's all good. It used to be that way in China too. In Beijing, people would bike around in three-piece suits and arrive and still seem fresh. And of course, now most of them are in cars and there's very few bicycles. And and they never get where they're going because traffic (laughs) is, yes. Not in the cars. But on Copenhagen, Bill McKibben, you were there, I was there. A lot of people were there hoping for a global deal. Uh, and yet now that seems not possible, perhaps not even desirable for the world to come together in a global deal. Is that still your hope? Oh, there's um, got to be sooner or later uh, a global agreement of some kind. I mean, I don't think there's any other. Uh, I mean, this is the first global problem that we've ever had. If we can't get the, and, and we're not going to get America and China and the other big problems to agree without some serious pressure from the other countries of the world. I mean, you know, everybody's going to for the next sort of international negotiations to Durban this fall. And hopefully one of the things that will be happening there is the entire continent of Africa, which the top half of which is locked in a devastating drought right now, will be putting serious pressure on the world. We've got to, I mean, that's that's one of the things we do at 350.org is try to mobilize the whole planet and most of the people on that planet use so little carbon that they don't have any effective way in their own personal lives to change the outcome. But politically, they can put a lot of pressure on those of us who should be changing things. Uh, Copenhagen, the movie did not end the way that it was supposed to end. <laughs> I mean, we had 117 nations that we managed to sign on to this 350 parts per million target. All right, That's good but they were the wrong 117 nations. You know, they were all the, all the poor and vulnerable ones and the rich and addicted ones led by our country undermined that meeting and have done nothing since. The State Department has been, even under President Obama, a complete and utter failure at getting any kind of international momentum going towards an agreement. We've got to change that. And, and uh, you know, Eventually, this, I mean, here's the thing about climate change. Eventually, this is going to happen. Eventually, there are going to be enough bad things that have happened that people all over the world will be saying we have no choice but to do something. Sooner or later, we'll do it. The problem is, sooner or later is the issue because the physics and chemistry of climate change do not give us a very long window to operate. And if we choose later instead of sooner, then we might as well not really bother, frankly, because the the problem will have passed a point where it's uh, uh, any longer susceptible to our amelioration. Greg, you talked openness, talking about jobs, but if we just look at where we are right now and say, okay, what would it take to achieve 450 ppm, that is to cap at 450 before drawdown in 25 years, the first thing we have to do is stop increasing our use of energy. And it's about 16 terawatts right now. 16 trillion watts uh, per So in order to do that, just to kind of give you, and you can do the numbers yourself and play. It's fun to do, but you would need 200 square uh, <coughs> meters of 15% uh, solar panels uh, every second 
for uh, 25 years, and you need 50 square meters of solar thermal. Uh, building s- building new ones, you're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Every Deployment. second for yeah. 25 years, you would need uh, uh, one three gigawatt uh, wind turbine every six hours for 25 years. You need one Olympic-sized swimming pool of uh, biodiesel algae every second for 25 years. You need one new 100 megawatt um, geothermal plant uh, every uh, day for every week, excuse me, every week for 25 years, and you'd need one three gigawatt nuclear power plant every week for 25 years. So, <laughs> so wow, that's the shopping list, and you can rearrange it, you know, and and any way you want, and that's with population increasing by almost 50 percent, uh, not quite, but maybe 40 percent during that time. With many people in the world needing more energy, not less, we're a 10,000-watt society. If you divide 16 <coughs> uh, terawatts into 7 billion, you get a, just under 2,300 watts per person is the allocation that would be fair and just right now, and we're way over that. And so we have to think about what does the 2,000-watt society look like? And actually, it looks fantastic because really... It's the source of innovation, and you know we all have smartphones and things. But just think about the number of things you do now that were so kludgy and had such a big footprint, you know, uh, not so many years ago. Remember the phone? You said, "God, this phone number has zeros. I have to keep dialing zeros, you know, on the rotary dial." And and now it makes no difference, you know. I mean, this little thing. So we know that, in a sense, changing fundamentally our technologies so that we do more with less is not a curse. It is a blessing. And again, we have a tremendous amount of, 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 of lobbying and bizarre politics, in a sense, convincing us that we do so at our peril, that we do so at risk to our economy, to our future, to our children, to our security. And the fact is, the truth is the other way around. Paul Hawken is CEO of One Sun Solar, also guest here at Climate One is Bill McKibben, founder of 350.org. I'm Greg Dalton. A full uh, program of this is available on iTunes uh, if searching for Climate One and also video clips at climate-one.org. Uh, there's been some gloom and some optimism here. When you're talking to your children, what do you tell them? Are you gloomy or optimistic or both? Bill, you have a young, young daughter? I have given up trying to figure out whether I'm optimistic or pessimistic on any given day. I get up every day and try to think what I can do to change the odds of this wager sum. Um, There are scientists who think we waited too long to get started. There are political scientists who think the odds are too high. Um, They may be right. I mean, if you were a betting person, you would bet that we're going to lose because we've lost steadily for 20 years, all right? But it's not a bet you're allowed to make. Uh, You know, the only morally permissible thing to do when the worst thing that ever happened in the world is in the process of happening is try to figure out how to keep it from happening, how to change those odds. And there's plenty of reason to be hopeful. And that reason lies in the extraordinary emergence of people in every country on the planet willing to work really hard to do the right thing. And to be able to, I mean, it's been an enormous privilege to be able to go around the world and be in rooms like this one every place, all, every continent, every demographic, and have people who you know are going to fight until the last possible minute. And to always to be in their company, to be in this company, is a great privilege. I think another way to answer that question for me is, like, is, to, is prepositionally, which is are the 
array of environmental and social issues that are lined up kind of uh, out there as far as you can see that look so baleful. Are they happening to me? Or are they happening for me? And I choose for. Because if they're happening to me, then I'm deep in the pocket, I'm at odds, and I'm going to struggle for the rest of my life. If they're happening for me, it means that these are all gateways to transformation, both externally and internally. Because there's no way that we're going to make this transition without basically changing who we are as human beings. And so the the cascading series of crises that we have all created and generations before us that are manifesting at this time are actually a gift to humanity. And we can spurn the gift or we can accept it. If we accept it, then we lead an extraordinary life because it doesn't matter what somebody says or what's predicted or what the odds are because we then lead a life that's transcended in terms of its service and its giving to others. And so for me, I, if I had to do it all over again, this is when I want to be. In fact, I wish I could be younger right now. But I mean, this is when I want to be born. This is when I want to be alive. And I love the fact that the odds are stacked against us. And what do you tell your kids? That. Did you wish you could be younger? <laughs> yeah, I was going to be their age. <laughs> uh, we're going to put the microphone out here and invite you to, to line up to uh, pose a question uh, to Bill McKibben or Paul Hawken. And um, we'll put that right out here. But first, I want to ask you, <clears throat> we've talked about companies and their, their incentives and different types of companies. Where do you invest your money? Do you invest your money in mainstream companies? Do you try to invest in less bad companies that are part of these social responsible indices? Paul, you've been inv- involved in socially responsible investing for a long time. Is that uh, a place you're still comfortable with the maturity of the, the investment choices there? Well, I mean, there's a tremendous amount going on in um, ESG, SRI, or impact investing. Environment, social, and governance. Yeah, Yeah, whatever you want to call it. There's lots of acronyms now. Um, And there's a nice dynamic going on between companies. You have B Corp, you have GRIs. Uh, There's a group here in uh, San Francisco starting SASB, which is Sustainable Accounting Standards Board. It's a nonprofit organization so that all companies report out on sustainability in a consistent, uniform, and transparent way. And so, the, but I, I want to go to a friend of mine, Karsten Henningsen, who runs Portfolio 21. And I have to say that if you want to make a difference with your money, you want to loan it and not invest it into equities. You want to loan it, whether it's microloans or it's to low-income housing or to retrofitting uh, low-income housing or in, in at low interest rates to people who are actually involved in transforming the environment, their lives, their cities, their neighborhoods, uh, as opposed to investing in a socially responsible corporation. Because that money just sits there and it goes back and forth and maybe it raises their market cap marginally, but it doesn't work. I mean, I mean it's not at work. Whereas when you loan money through like the Rudolf Steiner Foundation and places like that, that money is actually doing something every day. Bill McKibben? Uh, well, you know, I've spent my life as a writer and now an activist, so I've solved this problem by not having any money. Um, <laughs> um, uh, but I think Paul's 
Paul's right. I love all the stuff that people are starting to do with the slow money and right. you know these kind of um, investing uh, locally, not globally. Exactly, because right. uh, you know you might actually have some idea of what nearby you needs doing. That's and, midnight. Uh, Where's your money? You would know right. if you. Yeah. Excellent. Let's have our audience question, please. <clears throat> Uh, yes, Wei Lee from uh, Los Altos Hills, California. Thank you for uh, being here. Um, I uh, have a question on that uh, heavy-duty carbon tax, uh, which I like it a lot. But often uh, the uh, fossil fuel company like to pass those tax to the consumer, and I would like to hear um, how, what is your <coughs> strategy of preventing that happen or make it you know as little as possible. So we want fossil fuel companies to pass the cost on to consumers. That's how it's going to work. So you put a, if you put a huge tax on Exxon uh, for every barrel of oil or whatever it's got, then you do want them to raise the price at the pump until Americans are paying what Europeans pay for gasoline. But you don't want to bankrupt people in the process. That's why the, some of the most promising strategies in recent years for this kind of stuff fall into this rubric that we call, like, cap and dividend or something like that. You take the money from Exxon uh, and you write everybody in the country a check every month for their share. I mean, if anybody owns the sky, we all do, not Exxon, you know. So, um, And under most of those schemes that people have put out, and Maria Cantwell, uh, the senator from Washington, has mm-hmm. done the sort of most ambitious ones so far, 80% or so of Americans actually come out ahead uh, they begin to get enough money back that they actually have something to go put the Paul's solar panels up on their roof with and, you know, things like that. Um, um, that's probably in the long run. The, and, and some of these strategies, are things are working pretty well. Uh, I was just up in Canada, and British Columbia has had a version of this now for a couple of years. And The Economist just wrote an article explaining that it had been effective both in reducing carbon and in keeping people kind of mollified um, that that they weren't being ripped off by the whole thing. Uh, the bottom line is, you know, our tax system is very odd in that we busily tax things that we actually would like to encourage employment, say, instead of taxing things that we would really like to get rid of, like pollution. And moving in that direction, I think if we, you know, if we're smart, we can figure out how to do it in a sensible way. Next question, please. Hi, um, my question's for Bill. My name's Peter Gisela. And my question is, um, if you could open up a section in your 350.org debating uh, idea I've been promoting for 30 years, and if you can, also respond in writing why you did that, and if not, respond in writing why you chose not to. Um, I was a medical veteran. Which which uh, proposal would you like him to open up? As a uh, there was service? a bill in the Congress... 30 years ago to challenge you between 17 and 18 to think about doing some form of community service or military service. My proposal to the <laughs> Congress was to establish a youth energy efficiency corps decentralized across the country. And since then, nearly every liberal I've encountered has rejected this idea, but not really clearly stated to me why they've rejected it. Here's your chance. Youth Energy Conservation Corps. Well, I, it strikes me that, it, I mean, I don't know all the details of your plan, the basic idea is good, and we're seeing a lot of that start to happen, and some of it's coming right out of the Bay Area. You know, Van Jones really did a tremendous job of getting this sort of connection between young people 
in poor places and the need to have those people out and employed doing just this kind of work. We're seeing the same things in you know, a new company called Solar Mosaic, a kind of nonprofit that's doing its first project in Oakland right now, getting communities involved in financing uh, uh, this kind of transition. I got to tell you, my sense from around the world is it's young people who are providing most of the leadership that we're seeing on this issue. Certainly it's true at 350. Everybody I work with is 24 and, you know, 26, which is good because they have a lot more energy than I do. But um, uh, that's who's leading the charge. And it's time for the rest of us to be catching up to them, I think. Thank you. Next question, please. Hi, Michael Bikowski, uh, San Francisco. About 30 years ago, uh, as an undergrad, I took a physics class, and uh, we discussed carbon dioxide emission spectrum and absorption spectrum. It was fairly clear that physically uh, uh, global warming, warming must exist. There's no question about it. And yet, 30 years later, with uh, overwhelming evidence, you have a presidential uh, candidate claiming that the science is still open. Uh, the science of that is as closed as the existence of gravity, and yet their message prevails. So the question and the challenge for you is, what's wrong with your message? We are all sitting here, and you know, you're preaching to the converted extremely well, effectively. I mean, Paul can answer this better, maybe better than I can. Um, but the, 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 the truth is, the message hasn't failed, okay? Most Americans understand that climate change is real, We elected a president four years ago who campaigned with the most beautiful rhetoric that you could imagine. He said, on the night he was nominated, said, in my presidency, the rise of the oceans will begin to slow and the planet will begin to heal. Um, The thing that gets in the way is what I described before. It is the unlimited power of the fossil fuel industry to throw smoke in everybody's eyes. The exact same people did the exact same thing with smoking and tobacco and lung cancer for 20 years. That's how long it took to vanquish them then. Unfortunately, we don't have 20 years to do it, so that's why people are going to jail and doing what they need to do, trying to move this up. But it's not a problem with scientists have done their job, man. The scientific method has been absolutely vindicated. They took it difficult problem in physics and chemistry and arrived at a workable consensus. It's the political method that has failed as badly as the scientific one has worked, and the reason that it's failed is because it is polluted by money. And to the degree that we can fight around that, we have a chance. But even some scientists would admit they could be better communicators of, of their science uh, and, and around that. Fair That's enough. why we need you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> just to talk to scientists. Uh, next question, please. Um, I'm a big fan of think globally, act locally kinds of solutions. And, like, my favorite recent change is that the Postal Service has come out with these stamps that say, Go Green. And each stamp has a different suggestion, like walk or ride a bike or compost. You know, it's like a whole sheet of the things. The only problem is you have to go to the post office to get them because they don't have them in the vending machines. Um, Your question? (laughs) Yeah. um, (laughs) So if the post office stays in business, that'll be a good thing. (laughs) Well, if those stamps, you know. Okay, so... Yeah, the quest, I didn't really have a great question, but it's like if you walk your talk, 
you know, how do you make that bubble up to the kind of thing that everybody can see is a good idea? Thank you. You walk your talk step by step. But you talk about individual action is deceptive because it's not visible. You know, mm-hmm. if we don't use plastic bags or we buy organic food, that we underestimate the power of that action because the impacts are not visible to us. Sure, because it's bottom-up. It's the way nature organizes. And we are so um, inebriated and, and schooled in the way uh, power organizes. And power organizes <laughs> by concentrating money, concentrating uh, weaponry, <laughs> concentrating violence, uh, force. And, you know, I, I think it's important to understand that we live in a very violent culture. And we say, oh, yeah, of course. I mean violent every step of the way. It's not just violence in Iraq and Afghan. It's a violence to our children the way they're educated. It's a violence to women. Women know this the world over. It's violent the way we treat our soils and agriculture. We're violent to our forests. Our thermal industrial system is violent in terms of chemistry. I mean, every single aspect of what we do in this culture is violent. And what we're talking about is maybe moving to a world and a civilization that starts to look at nature as a mentor, as Janine Benyu says, that really basically imitates what we see in nature, which is life creates the conditions that are conducive to life. And you don't do that with force. You don't do it with coercion. You don't do it by power over uh, strategies. And when we start to think that way, then we also are tapping into an enormous resource in terms of innovation, both in terms of technologically but also in terms of social technologies. And this is, I mean, to be gender-specific, this is feminine. And we've gone through a long masculine period of force. Uh, We're trying to force everything to happen, and this is the result. And so force is not going to work. And so if this movement is going to work, it's going to work because of kindness, of generosity, of compassion, of reaching out, not because we're going to imitate what has happened in the past. Paul Hawken is CEO of One Sun Solar. And our other guest today here at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is Bill McKibben, founder of 350.org. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's have our next question, please. Hi. Thank you. Michelle Passero with The Nature Conservancy. Um, first of all, thank you for such a wonderful discussion and all the work that you're doing. Um, I'd be remiss if I don't mention that my organization is, is working um, and focused on climate change, both mitigation and how we adapt, and also the intersection with nature. And so I know my colleagues would love to talk to you later on. Uh, we have many, many questions. Um, I have a, a question, um, and Paul Hawken, you just briefly mentioned it in one of your explanations. It's related to population and population growth. How um, do you, and, and, and Bill McKibben, great to get your feedback on this, how do you see population pressure and population growth fitting in with our discussions on, on climate change and um, or climate volatility and you know, and, and, and how we how we deal with that. Do you see it as an issue or just, you know, is it technological? Thank um, you. A lot of environmentalists don't like to talk about this. I know, and they should. Um, well, first of all, we have to go back to, is it 1995 and the, uh, the Conference on Population organized by women in Cairo, the Cairo Conference, and there was two years of prep cons before that conference, and the women of the world, virtually from every country, not quite, but almost every country, North Korea was missing, uh, came up with a plan that would cap world population at 7.4 million at that time. And it was based on women's rights, education, health care, pretty straightforward stuff. And it was empirically proven and demonstrated and shown. 
And I don't remember one CEO, one male leader in the world standing up and saying, we should support the women. So when it comes to population, what we need, first of all, is to listen. (laughs) Okay, number two is kind of, and it may sound paradoxical, we have to create a world where every child is honored and treasured. And when they are, then that changes the whole population dynamic in the rest of the world where there's poverty, where children are an asset. Third, and we see megacities and cities themselves as kind of a scourge on the planet, the, the, the most fundamental, most powerful form of birth control is cities. Uh, because when people move from the country to the city, population levels plummet below replacement level because the parents don't go to cities to become poor. They go to cities to educate their children and to create a life that is better for their child or the children than they had. And so when you start to put all these together, we do have solutions, but fundamentally they don't exist unless there is the, the, the receptivity you know, to... Uh, the majority population in the world, which is, you know, women, women. I mean, that's it, and we just haven't done it. Next question, please. Okay. Gary Latshaw from uh, Cool Cities Cupertino. Uh, the question I have is, uh, you compared the protests at the White House with the uh, civil rights protests. Uh, civil rights was very heavily covered in the media. Uh, this, uh, very few of my friends even know about what went on at the White House even looking at the New York Times. Can you uh, give explanations, do you think, why it was so poorly covered in the media? Uh, actually, we were pretty pleased with the media. Co- I mean, the New York, when I walked out of jail, the first thing someone handed me was a um, copy of the New York Times with a big editorial saying, uh, Mr. President, stop this pipeline, um, which made me pleased. We'd gotten through on that level. But you got to remember, this is the first time... Uh, that this has happened in a long time in our movement. Uh, people didn't, if you go look at the history of the civil rights movement, there were long years of people doing all kinds of brave things, much braver than anything we did, before you got to uh, Birmingham and before you got to Selma. We don't know about St. Augustine and Florida and Albany and Georgia and all the other places where the movement did amazing things. Um, the other thing to be said is we live in a world where we can begin to make some of our own media now, and we're doing it pretty effectively. Uh, the fact that we were able to get 1,250 people even to come to Washington and from all 50 states and get arrested over a cause that two months before almost none of them even really knew about is a good sign that we're able to start spreading these things. So, you know, you're right. It would be much easier if, you know, like the right wing, we had our own TV network to do our bidding and so on and so forth. But um, um, I, my guess is that as long as people behave courageously, uh, it will resonate. Um, um, and to some degree, it's, a, you know, everybody's job to make sure that that happens, to spread the word. You know, everybody in this room who has an email account, is more connected than the most connected person in the world was 20 years ago. And we can we can get the word out if we decide to do it. Bill McKibben is founder of 350.org. Let's have our next question, please. Hi, uh, Tom Newman from uh, Physicians for Social Responsibility. Very practical question. Um, if I buy carbon offsets, can I uh, have a vacation in Hawaii without feeling guilty about the flight? <laughs> 
Paul Hawken? That's, that's kind of like the California cuisine problem, which is uh, people notice when came from Alice Waters and Japanese, but there's clean, green, organic, fantastic cuisine that emerged out of California. And people notice that after people finish their meal, they ordered the richest dessert possible. <laughs> and because uh, they felt somehow that they had done a good thing and now they can just pork out on dessert. And so the answer is uh, emphatically no. Uh, <laughs> stay home. Yeah, no, if you're going to, I mean, or if you're determined to get on an airplane, you know, come to Washington and go to jail with us. You know, uh, uh, that's where we need you. You can wear your Hawaiian shorts and your Hawaiian, yeah. Next question, please. Hi, I'm James George with EnviroBeat. Um, <clears throat> the United States got wealthy off fossil fuels and is not really willing to go with the Kyoto approach <clears throat> or pay any kind of reparations for the climate damage that we've already done. What can we hope for in terms of an agreement? I mean, if, if Obama goes ahead with the uh, pipeline and when the uh, – when the petroleum price was getting too high and he opened the reserves to lower it. Is there any way the United States can get up to the bully pulpit and say, hey, let's make a deal? What can we offer? Look, at the moment, there's no possibility right now for a global deal, just like there's no possibility for anything happening in Congress right now. We're clearly not there. That's why our job is to build a political movement big enough to force our leaders to actually lead. And that's not something that has happened around climate until recently. The reason we started 350.org was because at a certain point, after sort of having written the first book about this and gotten to watch for 15 or 20 years while nothing happened, it dawned on me that the strategy of having scientists whisper in the ear of politicians about what the biggest problem in the world was wasn't working because while they were whispering in one ear, the fossil fuel industry was bellowing in the other ear about what they were going to do. And and without, I mean, we're never going to have the money that the fossil fuel industry has, so we better find an alternate currency to work in. And that currency has got to be our bodies and our creativity and our spirit and our passion. That's what political movements are about. That's what we're trying to build. When we build one, as we build one, new political possibilities open up. We got, we're got we out of time. We're going to do two quick questions. Let's get these real quickly. Yes. Yeah, Jason, student at a Presidio Graduate School. Um, I just subjected myself to watching the GOP uh, presidential <laughs> debate, um, and the issues of climate change were addressed uh, briefly. Um, and while not everyone had the same opinions, there were uh, clearly what I would perceive as fringe uh, per- perceptions of climate change uh, and that don't actually represent their um, their base, uh, their constituency. So um, I guess my question would be, how do we uh, address the media uh, to pass the mic to that the constituency uh, to people who are doing uh, big things in this in this area that uh, and, and kind of get away from that that fringe uh, to seem as 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 though we're normal. Thank you. When, when's the last time you saw anybody convince the media of anything? I mean, the media is owned by large corporations, and they're, they're driven by ratings, they're driven, they're driven by their advertising. There was a really good piece in the, on the New Yorker, I forget how many years ago, but it was about how the Weather Channel 
had banned all mention of climate change in conjunction with extreme weather. It said that was not allowed because it was bumming out the advertisers. And so um, the what you see in the media is going to be a direct or indirect expression of commerce, I mean, of, of selling. And so, again, I, I, I want to repeat that phrase. We, we can't look for love in the wrong places. And, and that's certainly one of the places to, to not look for it. And we have to look to each other. And we need a world, uh, a country of differences. We don't need a country divided because we will definitely fail the task at hand in such a way. And that's what we're seeing. But the way we undivide, the way we come together uh, is very different than trying to counter that message, which was rife with contradiction and ignorance, uh, invoking Galileo as, you know, uh, the minority representative of empiricism. I mean, I don't know what Rick Perry was thinking about, but, you know, perhaps he wasn't. But it gives a soundbite delivered to him. But the fact is that uh, that we have to really re- rethink how we do things, and it's not trying to find the biggest lever, you know, because the biggest leverage we have is each other and community and the ways we interact. And really, I believe, and again, I'm, this is not advice, but if we could replicate what's happening in front of the White House, in front of all the major Democratic Party headquarters around the country with sit-ins and arrests and so forth, and make all the local Democratic uh, uh, congressmen and congresswomen and senators and so forth uh, have the same experience that Obama is having, so forth, I think it would have a very profound effect on the decision. And, and, and that is done by, you know, volunteering and showing up and communicating and networking and willing to spend a night in jail, at least pay 100 bucks. Paul Hawken is CEO of One Sun Solar. Let's have our last question here at Climate One, please. Hi, um, Shannon McElyer with Green Successes. Um, just real quick, talking about Perry, I like the comment when he doesn't believe in evolution, have him take last year's flu shot. Um, I was just wondering about uh, uh, 52% of, of, of energy consumption in America is from buildings, and that's uh, – I don't work for the building industry, but um, um, that's um, heating, lighting, air conditioning, and it also includes materials, uh, building of materials, etc. And I'm just wondering, um, are there any um, investments and loans in human capital and activism and getting policy uh, policies made and changes made to um, renovate buildings, um, to create new uh, zero-energy buildings? And that would also be, especially for uh, city uh, state and government, federal buildings, all government buildings, where after essentially five to ten years, the taxpayers home free on energy. And so, uh, that came through with NASA the other day. Thank you. Retrofitting existing buildings? Well, I guess a big, that's a big subject. It, it is the major source of energy in the United States, it, the retrofitting. And it's a major source, dollar for dollar, more jobs per dollar, per million dollars, or whatever metric you want to use, in retrofitting than any other form of job creation. And um, there is no more effective way than to secure the country and employ people, upskill them, and change the environment. Number one, create jobs. What I'd recommend is that you get in touch with Rachel Gutter, who is in charge of the Green Schools program at the U.S. Green Building Council in Washington, D.C. She's an amazing woman. And what she's doing is going into school districts and just 
and and in red states and red cities and red schools and so forth, and absolutely uh, transforming uh, their state of mind about what schools are, what schools should be, how they should be built, energy, the the curriculum, the teachers, the principals, the the the, the board of education and so forth, and it is a um, a clinic really in in transformation, how to make change where you don't expect it. And it is right in the built environment, but the means and the ways and the, uh, she does it is so innovative, so funny, so moving, so direct, so compelling that I think we could all learn from Rachel. I think she's 28, 29, and she is uh, a, 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 she's fantastic. We need to end it there. Our thanks to Bill McKibben and Paul Hawken for their comments here today. Uh, you can hear a full podcast of this program on iTunes and see video clips at climate-one.org. I'd like to thank Paul and Bill for being here with us. Our thanks to our audience here and on radio. I'm Greg Dalton. Thanks for coming to Climate One today.